Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Alan Rusbridger, editor at Prospect Magazine, and today I'm joined by Deputy Editor Samir Rahim to discuss Salman Rushdie's book, The Satanic Verses, after Rushdie was stabbed in a horrific attack at an event outside New York on the 12th of August. In his definitive essay in the current Prospect, Demonising Rushdie, Samir argues that the Satanic Verses is a capacious work of art that anticipates all the debates and criticisms that have been levelled at it within its own pages. Thanks so much uh, to Samir for joining us. Um, Where were you when you heard about that attack and did it come as a great surprise? I think I was in the British Library doing a little bit of uh, work and just sort of saw it on my phone and my immediate feeling was sort of sucker punched to the stomach because I just felt um, yeah, that's it. They finally got him. Thirty-three years. The the sort of the tragic arc of the story is um, possibly finally completed. Now, thank goodness he seems to have survived despite horrible injuries. And um, I was pleased to hear that his son Zuffer said that his humour was still intact. But it's still a terrifying event, and I think in a way we're still trying to absorb the horror of it. You begin your your piece with a very striking sentence. I'll, I'll read it to you. The first time I saw Salman Rushdie, he was wearing devil's horns and being burnt at the stake. Can you can you tell us uh, what that was all about? I think it's probably my earliest memory of a public event. Um, it would just ran straight through uh, the British Muslim community which I grew up in. I was watching it on TV. I think it must have been a news clip. And it was thousands of people, British Muslims, in Hyde Park um, with slogans saying, you know, kill the bastard and Rushdie is Satan. And yeah, turning him into a sort of devil-like figure um, and, and sort of burning him at the stake in effigy. Um, and what I found so striking is that the novel itself plays with the idea of him becoming Rushdie and his characters becoming demons. One of the main characters is Saladin Chamcha, and in the sort of fantastical, magical, realist style, he come, he turns into this cloven-hooved and sulphurous demonic creature. Um, and the logic of that is that um, he's being othered 
he is being demonised by white racists in Britain. And so he literally becomes, as it were, the devil. And Rushdie has a great play with this. Jibril Farishta means the angel Gabriel. Um, and um, it is in Jibril's dreams that the satanic verses incident and the whole controversy over the, the Prophet Muhammad or a character very like the Prophet Muhammad um, is played out. So in a way, it's a bizarre compliment to Rushdie himself and the power of his imagination that his opponents picked up on that satanic element um, in the title um, and turned it against him. I think it was Susan Sontag who said that if only the novel had been called something like The Mountain by the River, um, he wouldn't have got into so much trouble. But the vividness of the title itself um, provoked people, um, and um, but they still couldn't, in a way, escape its metaphoric power. Um, so that I always thought that was a fascinating paradox. You you were a young boy when at, at the time when you when you saw this um, effigy being burnt, but I think you said that your 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 parents actually felt some sympathy with those who were protesting against. Absolutely, and I think that it was a moment where the notion of British Muslim didn't really exist, and it was in this violent moment of, in a way, turning on one of ours who had apparently betrayed us, who'd stepped out the bounds of the tribe, who people had you know, said in various conspiracy-laden ways was doing it for the money or was being paid by the intelligence services or, uh, or any of this kind of um, sort of weird allegations. Uh, and I think it was a way of focusing on someone who was one of ours and therefore we could be legitimately angry about. I don't go into it in the piece, actually, but there is a long history of Muslims protesting against portrayals of the Prophet in Western uh, literature. So there was a play by Voltaire called Muhammad, um, and um, I think it was put on in the early 20th century. Um, and uh, the, there were protests in, in, in British India against uh, the production of this uh, play, um, and it was told you know, the British authorities had to clamp down on this. Um, and somehow the fact that it was one of our own who was doing this made it all the more sort of needling. Uh, the irony, of course, is that Satanic Verses it has probably the first sympathetic description of British Muslims in English literature. And within the novel itself, it plays out all the debates over faith and doubt and conflicting identities and multiculturalism and how to live with multiple selves. The ideal reader for this book, the one who will understand all its conflicts and divisions and explorations, is a British Muslim. And those are the very people who turned against the author. And I, I sense from your piece that, that one of the problems uh, is that most of the people who are discussing this book have never read it, including most British Muslims, I imagine. Yes, and even the ones who have read it were confronted with stories which they felt were totally alien to the life of the prophet. But actually, Rushdie is using, as it were, a forgotten but totally legitimate part of Islamic history, the incident of the Satanic Verses, which we can go into into more detail if you, if you want. In a sense, it was his discovery or rediscovery of that moment and his very powerful dramatization of it that offended people's sense of you know the perfectibility of the prophet and various doctrines that actually came much later after his his life. Then in a second chapter, he goes and, and has a sort of 
more elaborate and uh, chapter of a dream chapter about the prophet's wives being impersonated by prostitutes, which touches on very sensitive areas of sort of shame and um, sexuality that are definitely provocative and perhaps artistically, I feel, are less strong, um, a less strong part of the book. Um, the mere mention of these things are enough to get people ignited. But of course, it was a confluence of different things. It was genuine offence of being taken, which is a legitimate part of the, you know, people write books, people can be offended by them. It was also politics and politicians exploiting that feeling of offence. And it was a moment of tribal coming together, a sort of um, identity formation for, for British Muslims. And one can, in fact, trace the slightly troubled identity of British Muslim back to that moment, because it was forged in a moment of sort of violence, really. Um, uh, both real violence, because people were killed and uh, translators were killed, Japanese translator was stabbed to death. An imam in Belgium, it's often forgotten, who condemned the fatwa, uh, was also killed. Um, yeah, it just seems to be such a, a prescient and prophetic moment. Uh, you, you say in the piece, you, you finally came round to reading the book as a teenager. What what was your reaction having, as it were, inherited that baggage from your parents and with the people all around you when you read it for yourself? In a book at that point had been turned into this sort of radioactive icon, um, it seemed to symbolise everything that you shouldn't become if you were a British Muslim. You shouldn't betray your people in inverted commas. You shouldn't um, um, you know, put your dirty laundry in public. You sh if you had doubts, you should keep them keep them quiet. Um, Rushdie had actually explored all this in his novel Shame and in the Satanic Verses itself. I was always curious about the book. I'd read Midnight's Children and loved it uh, when I was 16, but, you know, felt I needed to sort of gird myself to prepare myself for the Satanic Verses. I remember going into W.H. Smith and buying it, um, feeling weirdly sort of guilty, almost as if I was t taking a sort of top shelf magazine down from the rack. Um, and I sort of, without asking my parents or um, arguing with them, I just sort of kept it in my house, but kept it sort of in a, under my bed and read it at night. And and I, and I think that um, it was one of the first books that really spoke to me um, uh, in a way that its playfulness, its exploration of identity, its discussion of British Muslim life, and its fantastical elements as well. There was a lot that I didn't understand on my first reading. Um, but certainly the sort of the Islam chapters, I absolutely sort of felt like, wow, this person is, is, is really exploiting and exploring um, the secret feelings that people may have, the, the, the sort of innermost, uh, most troubling um, doubts that they have. Um, and I think mostly, not entirely, but mostly in a, in a really interesting and dramatically um, uh, uh, rich way. I, I couldn't decide reading your piece whether you thought that Rushdie is almost too scholarly. He knows too much about this subject uh, and is writing on a level that most people can't aspire to reach or whether he's not scholarly enough and that his, his sort of instincts for being controversialist and, and, um, and provocative um, overcame any any um scholarship or learning that he has about the things that he was writing about well he was historian studied history at cambridge in the 60s where he came across the satanic verses incident and i think in a 
It's in the biography uh, of the prophet by William Muir, who wrote the, in 1861, wrote a, wrote a biography. The actual phrase, the satanic verses, I think first is invented, is a Victorian invention. Um, although the incident itself that it refers to is um, uh, definitely there in Islamic, Islamic sources. What's interesting for me is that um, the idea that, you know, that the prophet compromised monotheism briefly and uh, accepted goddesses as part of the pantheon of the Islamic tribe was for the early Muslims, as Rushdie recognised, um, uh, a perfectly normal story because that's what prophets did. They got tempted and then they overcame. Uh, and that sort of dramatic story um, was something very appealing to um, Muslim uh, readers in the early early days. Now, Rushdie being Rushdie, what he does is he reverses that trajectory. And he says at the moment where he sort of the Prophet compromises, that wasn't something to be overcome. That was the lost moment where Islam could have been something better. It could have been um, more multifarious and full of multiplicity and the kind of postmodernism he sort of retrofits postmodernism onto this old Islamic story. Certainly, I think what it meant was that in the last 33 years, academics, um, including Muslim academics like uh, Shahab Ahmed, who I quote, he wrote a very good book called Before Orthodoxy, have gone back to that incident, re-explored it, dug it up. So he's not a scholar himself, Rushdie, but what he does is he set off with his imaginative power. A lot of other people, including myself, like digging up, well, did this really happen? Who said it? You know, uh, and all the rest of it. So no, he, he he's a magpie, Rushdie. He, he he takes things which seem most vivid and interesting to him and, and plays them out in a dramatic form of a novel. Um, that's his job, really. It's not, to, it's not to offer a sort of scholarly treatise. To, to, to just talk us through the, the most controversial chapters. I think there are two two of the most controversial chapters that deal with Islamic history. What about it was so toxic? So the novel is about two characters, one of whom, who I mentioned before, is called Jibril Farishta, and he's a Hindi movie star. And he stars in films called Theologicals, which is a real genre of movie, mainly in South India. Um, and he is brought up a Muslim, very similar to Rushdie's own background in Bombay. Um, he's an actor. Rushdie was an actor, of course, before he became a novelist. And he loses his faith. Um, he uh, goes into a period of acute crisis. He, he has been taken hostage by terrorists, uh, Sikh extremists, as it happens. And whilst he's been taken hostage, he goes to sleep and he dreams an almost almost Bollywood-esque version of the life of a prophet called Mahound. So it's not the prophet Muhammad, but it's a character a bit like the prophet. Um, Rushdie always likes to play around with names and play around with the sort of identities in that way, and he does the so here. So in the first dream chapter, he is exploring the idea that the prophet, when he got his revelations from uh, from God on the Mount uh, mountain, uh, Mount Hira, that um, he was asked by the pagans of Mecca to compromise and allow three pagan deities to be sort of almost equal to Allah. Um, Allat, Uzza and Manat, who broadly correspond to um, Greek goddesses. Um, and in, in the novel, uh, Mahound uh, is, gets a revelation which says that Yes, they should be accepted as deities. They are the exalted birds and their, dis their intercession is greatly to be desired. He 
comes down from the mountain and his followers are very upset because he's compromised the purity of the message. His opponents are delighted because he's compromised with them and he feel feel like that they're that, that he's accommodated to them. Um, then a short time later, he goes back up the mountain and he discovers you know, there's a divine revelation saying that actually it was Satan whispering in your ear that it wasn't actually God. So the the original verses are struck out, abrogated, and new verses, which are actually in the Quran now, saying that, you know, these are, you know, um, not goddesses and, and there's only one God and it reaffirms the message of of monotheism. So that playfully explores the idea of faith and doubt um, in quite a powerful and interesting way. And in the prophet in is a sympathetic, dramatic character who goes through all sorts of doubts and goes through all sorts of worries about who he is and why he's hearing God's voice and whose voice is it. And actually what is interesting is that in the original biographies of the prophet, it's, it's quite a similar figure in that the prophet Muhammad when he first hears the revelations and in the Islamic sources, um, is so terrified that he contemplates suicide. He doesn't know why this is happening to him. He needs to be reassured by his wife and his followers. And he's someone who you can really sort of quite heavily identify with. In the second chapter, it's a dream sequence as well. And the character Jibril is having a mental breakdown and everything is falling apart for him. And it goes into more extreme territory. Um, which is not based on Islamic sources. So the prophet, this prophet Mahound, comes back as a victorious general leader um, to uh, the city, which is very like Mecca. Um, and his opponents, including a, a, a poet called Baal, um, are afraid of him and they escape. Uh, uh, so rather they hide. And Baal hides in a brothel. Uh, and when he goes to this brothel, he meets these 12 women and gradually they um, start to cater to the more outlandish fantasies of the men, the defeated men of Mecca, who fantasize that they want to sleep with the prophet's wives. And so these prostitutes pretend to be the prophet's wives. Now, Rushdie, in an essay after the book was published, defended himself saying, well, actually, I'm not insulting the prophet's wives because they're in the novel, they're, they're, they're deemed to be sort of chastely living with the prophet and they're not involved at all, which is sort of having your cake and eat it, eating it a bit because the whole dramatic force of the passages is to do with, you know, the mingling of the sacred and the, and the profane. Um, so that did touch on sort of very sort of sensitive topics, I suppose. But what is striking to me is, you know, in the world of Charlie Hebdo, where you have like very sort of, um, you know, viciously satirical cartoons of the prophet, to compare the two, one can make free speech defense of both these uh, on a principle level, but in terms of sort of their artistic quality and their sort of sympathy and interest in the religion. The Satanic Verses is a much, much more sort of rich and deeply engaged with Islam and Islamic history than, than the cartoons, for example. There's plenty much to argue with there. And there's much to sort of debate there. But what's quite sad is that the fate of Rushdie, you know, the vilification, that the, the hatred directed at him, and finally this brutal, appalling attack just closes down the space for discussion, debate, and freedom of thought. Because, you know, we, we have to allow that space. Otherwise, you just never get any kind of development or, or progress or... You know, and to do it within the bounds of, as it were, broadly speaking, Islamic thought, thinking, is quite important. 
because otherwise you lead to a situation as we seem to have now where it's you know western freedom versus eastern unfreedom and the only way to be modern is to be totally western and secular whilst the novel and i think some of the things that happened after the novel when rushdie was sort of anguished about the reaction of british muslims is much more to do with saying we can have this kind of debate and critique within the boundaries of our religion if you see what i mean Hiroshi always called it a family quarrel and i think it very much is that and excluding the people who um uh, who are the sort of the prickly members of the family the people who want to sort of question things the people who want to take things down you know wake the world up a bit is not good um for muslims and it's not good um for society in general did he know what he was doing i mean did he uh as he was writing those passages could he have anticipated should he have anticipated the reaction your blasphemy salman cannot be forgiven one of the more prophetic lines in the um in the book at some level he he must have known that people would react may well reacted badly to what he was he was doing you know he he had written about indira gandhi in midnight's children um very critically and in fact he was forced to withdraw some aspects of that novel in a when she took legal action against him uh, shame his second novel about pakistan was banned that he was used to being banned in um i think that he probably thought that uh maybe thought him thought khomeini might have taken against it um khomeini basically is parodied as a character in the satanic verses itself such an outlandish thing as a death sentence on him of obligating however theoretically every muslim to try and kill him um i don't see how he could have possibly anticipated that um but he does anticipate also the ideas of you know identity politics and tribal thinking certainly and he knew what he was doing was 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 edgy but i think because he has such a sort of interest in islam and islamic sources i think he felt like well you know if i'm not going to write this then who else will you say that he, although he's uh, i'm quoting from your your piece although he's now lauded as a free speech absolutist rushdie was genuinely disturbed at the time that the book was perceived as offensive by muslims british ones uh especially and he did actually try to engage in a, a dialogue didn't he with with muslim scholars yes and this is the sort of forgotten part of the story it's the abrogated part of the story of the free speech advocate side kind of want to forget it's about as embarrassing as the satanic verses is is for muslims it's on christmas eve 1990 he met with six islamic scholars um and he seemed to have a fruitful conversation with them and he said that you know I'll delay the paperback edition of the book and I'll put a note in future editions that do happen saying it's not intended to be an insult to Islam he never said he was going to withdraw the book he never said that um he's you know he know that he always remained firm on that um he said the declaration of islamic faith he said you know I'm a muslim but I'm I'm you know maybe I'm not a very good one but I um um I want to be within the family and you can read that article now um i think it was published in the new york times uh and it's the it's a very sort of anguished but he did open up a a dialogue within days one of the same scholars who had been friendly to him were you know turned on rushdi again and the response from tehran was well even if he becomes the most pious muslim who's ever lived and even if he uh you know 
renounces everything, he should still be killed. So totally uncompromising reply. And I think that basically cut off any possibility of dialogue. And Rushdie since then, and I think quite sort of understandably, turned his face against um, religion. He no longer calls himself a Muslim. Uh, he he um, is very much in the sort of uh, sort of secular. He became an secular icon, and those, those he went to the people who who supported him, and it's sort of the Christopher Hitchens who became his sort of um, uh, chief defender in public. Um, uh, and I think that moment of doubt, that moment of him doubt, which I think Rushdie feels embarrassed now, she shouldn't really be embarrassed by it. I think um, like like his prophet Mahound. Um, that moment of compromise was a possibility um, uh, of opening things up and bringing things to a sort of more settled conclusion. Um, that didn't happen. The possibility of reconciliation now is further away than ever. More violence means that, um, you know, one can, can't really read the book uh, other than uh, through the lens of what's happened later. But I suppose what I try and do in the piece is try and reclaim the sort of lightness and playfulness and freedom that he really had when writing it. Now he seems in a way a sort of constrained figure, um, uh, one who uh, representing the cause of free speech, which is which is a very noble one. But, um, you know, the playful Rushdie, the funny Rushdie, the Rushdie that is very unpious is the one that um, always attracted me. There's almost in square brackets a, a little note of personal biography of your own when you're at Cambridge. Uh, your supervisor gives you extracts from the satanic verses in a practical criticism class. Can you just tell that story? Yes, I was thinking about this. I, I'd sort of forgotten it and I'd only sort of put it together when I um, uh, uh, when I was thinking about this piece. Um, so yeah, so you, you rock up at Cambridge. It seems to be unusual. But in the first term, we did Prakrit class and we had some passages from the Satanic Verses. Now, I'd already read the book um, and I didn't have any problem with it. But I now realised that possibly the supervisor was trying to make a point to me or and he sort of called me back and we had, you know, chats about being a British Muslim and, and all the rest of it. Um, and then in my third year, 9-11 happened and I was actually doing a dissertation on the Satanic Verses. Um and he gave me a book by um, this guy, Daniel Pipes, and it was on Rushdie, and he was sort of a very neocon writer. And I didn't really like the book. It didn't didn't really sort of illuminate much for me. And then, you know, in the final weeks of uh, my time at university, he called me in and, you know, it was the sort of classic, well, you know, we've been looking at you for a while and, you know, you think you could be someone who could do very well for us in the security services. And um, you could, you know, so I was having, you know, having the sort of cliched recruitment, but he linked explicitly to this idea of, well, you can, you're someone who can move between multiple worlds and sort of, and it was sort of the Rushdie-esque translated man and the multicultural migrant, but, you know, in the service of the uh, of the war on terror. Um, and for me, that's just a sort of an example of how, the novel itself has been turned into this emblem. So I think he probably thought that, oh, he likes Rushdie, therefore he's sort of going to like George Bush or something. I mean, you know, something as crude is not quite as crude as that, but along those lines. Um, and, um, you know, Rushdie himself is excoriating in the Satanic Verses about British racism, about imperialism. Um, he wrote essays in the 80s about um, how... Um, 
ethnic minorities of Britain with a new empire within Britain. Um, and uh, so to try and turn him into a sort of recruiting tool for the security services seemed to be a bit off for me. Nevertheless, at the towards the end of the piece, you say you cannot help think that we Muslims have failed him. Can you just unpack that a bit? Yeah, I toyed with putting that in and then taking it out and putting it in. But, I, um, you know, as I was saying, he is very much one of us. He's one of our own. We all know or have, you know, an uncle who, you know, likes to drink and will tell salacious stories about mullahs and be quite um, uh, uh, daring in what they say. And if you look back in Islamic history, there have been loads, lots of thinkers exactly like that um, who've challenged orthodoxies and uh, and they are a part of us. They're a part of our tradition and we just cut off a vital part of us if we don't um, allow these critical voices to be heard, if we block our ears to them. Um, and I've been, you know, slightly disappointed in some respects by some of the reactions on Twitter and online where it seems to be either sort of silence or um, a sort of, oh, condemnation, but no recognition that this stabbing didn't happen in a vacuum and this has actually been a process of demonization of Rushdie um, over the decades or people pointing up um, you know, anti-Islam comments that Rushdie has made outside the context of what um, uh, what he's experienced. Um, but I have also heard and had, you know, WhatsApp discussions with people who are like, well, now's the time for us to actually read this book. You know, I'm talking about British Muslims. You know, maybe maybe this is the time to actually, like, get delve into it. And the silence, I think, is, is a kind of embarrassment as well, slightly. It, it's like, you know... Uh, our parents' generation and the people who called for his death. Um, you know, I, I would like to think that now, if something similar were, were to be published, that there would be a more sophisticated response and that the space for opponents of the book, who people who want to argue with it, would be bigger for them, but to argue in terms of, you know, literary, literary critical value or, you know, maybe have a political argument about whether... You think the book's any good or not? Just the you know the, the usual back and forth you have over over books. That's the space that needs to be be created, and um, there is just much more space out there now because um, people can't be hidden from things. You know, people can download the PDF, the Satanic Verses, very easily online. They can buy it. There was an audio book that came out uh, last year, which is very good, which I listened to in lockdown, um, uh, and seemed to be you know published without any kind of fuss at all. So it's so permeated into um, uh, our world now that it's time for people to sort of sit down and read it because they might be surprised by what they found. And the future for Rushdie himself? I mean, he spent years effectively in hiding um, when the fatwa first came out. Can he expect anything like a normal life in future? Well, the tragedy is, I mean, even if he recovers from his injuries, there's probably very little chance that he'll be able to live a life without guards and because in the manner of these things when one person does it it sort of imaginatively liberates other people to do the same kind of thing i mean if you were at a literary festival how would you invite him without you know very prominent security um i remember uh, when i was back in university rushdie came to talk um and you know there was a lot of security and we had to queue up for 
an hour or so. Um, I think it was um, the 5th of November and about halfway through the talk, fireworks went off around the Sidgwick site. <laughs> and there was there was a little bit of nervousness in the room that people, you know, but luckily nothing, nothing happened. I think he's been very brave in just stepping out into the world and realising he can't live a life um, in uh, total seclusion. But yeah, I think he's condemned for to be in the front pages and uh, I'm afraid for a little while longer. Thank you so much, Samir, for joining us. Thank you all very much for tuning in to hear us. If you enjoyed this podcast, escape the epic chamber and grab a copy of the new issue of, of Prospect Magazine or go to subscription.prospectmagazine, all one word, .co.uk to subscribe. In that issue, as well as Samir's excellent essay, you'll find writing from Sheila Hancock, Will Hutton and many more. Goodbye, stay safe and listen for the next episode of the Prospect podcast next week. 